Colossians 1, 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. In 1543, a Polish astronomer published a work right before his death. And the name of that work was On the Revolutions of Celestial Spheres. That person, though you might not know his name right now, was Copernicus. It is often called the Copernican Revolution. Uh, the publication of that book. Because before Copernicus, in terms of our understanding of the world, for the most part, we had a Ptolemaic view of the world. Now, you may say, what is a Ptolemaic view of the world? Well, you know what it is, maybe just not with the word Ptolemaic. It's the view of the world that says that the earth was the center of the universe, in effect, the known world. And that the planets and the sun and the moon and everything you see at night and during the day in the celestial sphere rotated around the earth. Copernicus came up with this extraordinary idea that it was quite the opposite. But before we speak about Copernicus's theory it might be good to remind ourselves, if you know anything of the history of science, that actually the Ptolemaic theory concerning the earth it was pretty good in a lot of ways. It actually was. I mean, it was a good system, better than we might have imagined. Uh, that system helped them predict the rise of the sun and the setting of the sun in terms of times. They figured that out. It actually, uh, the Ptolemaic theory of the universe affected the way they planted crops and their rotations, and they did very well with that theory. It predicted the uh, changes, the alterations in the celestial bodies, like, say, for instance, the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper, Orion's Belt, and the location in the sky. But, of course, there was a problem with it, its predictions were not always accurate, and that was because it was fundamentally wrong. But let me say this. It was perfectly logical. Based on the observation of the world, there was no reason to think that that theory was not effective. It was perfectly logical. However, it was wrong. And when 
we were introduced to the Copernican understanding of the world, we were introduced to a new perspective on life. And here's what was interesting about that new perspective on life. The reality that all of us before Copernicus had experienced really didn't change, right? In other words, the sun still rose and set, although we understood it wasn't really the sun coming up and the sun going down, it was the earth rotating. Matter of fact, we still use that phrase, sunrise and sunset, even in our modern meteorological jargon. It's not true, but we use it. It was also true uh, that the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper, Orion's Belt, after this new theory, were, they were in the same place in the sky. Didn't change that reality. But it was a new perspective on the same reality that we experienced every day, right? Now we were able to understand more fully this notion of gravity. Now we understood that while a rock was thrown into the air, it didn't levitate, why that was really true. Because there was a force pushing down on that object. Of course, advance many years ahead, and then we begin to realize that we don't need to fear shooting rockets up into the atmosphere. As a matter of fact, we shoot rockets up into the atmosphere, and we observe what Copernicus said was true, the rotation of the planets around the sun. Now, again, nothing has changed. The reality that we had always lived with was exactly the same. It was our perspective on that reality that changed. When we think about God and the history of the Christian religion, I want to suggest that there's an analogy here. That when Jesus Christ came to this earth and blew open the paradigm that everybody had in their mind concerning God, those who accepted the new paradigm had a different perspective on the same reality that they'd always experienced and that all of us would experience consistently. Before Jesus Christ, for the most part, we had a perspective, an understanding of God as powerful and a God that judges. That was true, consistently true in the Old Testament scriptures, and also rather consistently true in other religions. People feared the gods across the board. People expected that the gods were going to judge across the board. But now, in the person of Jesus Christ, well, a new perspective is introduced. Now we have a God who actually loves. Now you may say, well, there was a loving God in the Old Testament. Yes, but understand this. There was not a picture of a loving God who literally walked through the streets of first century Palestine and touched people who were unclean and healed them. We didn't have a picture of a God who walked through the streets of Palestine and sat down with sinners and prostitutes and ate with them. 
we didn't have an understanding of that kind of God. But now, with the advent of Jesus Christ into the world, boom, our understanding of God is entirely new. Actually, there were mysterious markers concerning this unusual perspective on God. You could have found them, and people do, and in retrospect, we understand them to be in the book of Isaiah, a suffering servant, a sacrificial servant that lays down his life. Now we see that as Jesus Christ himself. It's a new perspective on God. And now as in this passage, and it didn't develop until after the Gospels were fully completed, let's say, that the epistles began to be written later and later, we began to understand things concerning the Trinity and what it meant for God to be in Christ fully. And so eventually we understand things like this passage, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. We understand for the first time, oh my, when I look at Jesus, I'm looking at God. When I saw him walk and live and do the things he did, I was watching God. That's a new perspective on an old reality. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Second thing we begin to understand in this passage and in other places is that Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's not just the baby in the manger. Of course, we know he's more than that. He's not just the miracle worker who walked around and healed people. He's not just the friend of sinners. He's actually the creator of everything he touched and saw. Everything he did was done because it was created by him. Think about that for a moment. The reality he experienced and the reality we experienced were all because of him. It says that he was the firstborn over all creation. And one could infer, if you weren't reading carefully that text, that it meant that he was the first created being in totality or something. Well, we know he wasn't the firstborn in terms of chronology, right? Because Abraham preceded him by many years. So we know that's not true. So what in the world could it be talking about the firstborn over all creation? If we continue in this passage, we understand what it means. Paul is saying he's the firstborn over all creation because this firstborn over all creation is actually eternal, is actually God. He could hardly be said to have been the firstborn of creation if he was also the creator. He's eternally God. It says he's the creator of all things. That means the visible stuff. It means the stuff that this building was made out of. It means the atmosphere and the breath that's in our lungs. It means the water we drink. It means all the creatures in the entire world. He's the creator 
of all visible things. But he's also the creator of invisible things. He's the creator of those invisible scientific realities that we now understand by the advent of modern science. He's the creator of those scientific realities which are invisible. He's also the creator of all the sources that go bad. Things in the spiritual world, the heavenly realms. He's creator of it all. Whether it's thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all of them in heaven and on earth are created by him. Third, not only is he the image of the invisible God, not only is he the creator of the universe. Third, he's the sustainer of everything that is. Sustainer of all things. He's before all things, and in him, says Paul, all things hold together. I mean, just stop and think about that for a minute. In him, everything holds together. The reason you're looking at me and I'm looking at you, and you hear the sound of my voice, it's because He's holding it all together. Boom. (laughs) He is the ultimate unseen theory of all reality. No matter how many discoveries we will make, we'll never get behind whatever that discovery is, to the source of all things without stepping through the doorway of faith and acknowledging that the source of all things is Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. Furthermore, he says this, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The head of the church is not some form of of doing good. It's not some idea concerning morality. It's not some agenda. It's Jesus Christ. The one who's creator and sustainer of all things is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The head of the church is not our brand of Christianity. The head of the church is not our concoction of doctrines the way they think. We think they ought to be laid out. The head of the church is not about a charismatic somebody or a new agenda that's making the church grow. The head of the church is Jesus Christ, pure and simple. He doesn't need a charismatic leader. He doesn't need anybody. And of all things, he doesn't need me. He is the head of the church. And that church is eternal and invincible and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Including a damn pandemic. He's the head of the church. He's also the reconciler of all things. He's the one who brings it all together. 
And oh, what good news is this, because you know deep within your heart, before you were a believer, since you're a believer, that you need to be reconciled with God. You know there's a gulf. You know that your sin somehow affects your relationship with God, and you know you need reconciliation. He's the reconciler between God and humanity. He's also the reconciler between each of us. United around the truth of Jesus Christ, we're reconciled in spite of our differences. I'm 60 now. I know I only look 45, but I'm 60. (laughs) And at 60 years of age, I've seen quite a few things. I lived in the 60s and understood them to a certain extent. And I've never lived, as far as I can tell, in, in a world that is so divided and has so much discord. I don't remember a time. Jesus is the reconciler of all things. He's the one who brings justice and peace. Today, I don't need to tell you that families are divided like they've never been divided before. That churches are divided like they've never been divided before. That our community and our nation is divided like it's never been divided before. So, let me also ask this question. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to do with the national debt or an infrastructure bill or theories on the economy? or taxes? Are masks and no masks? Are vaccines and no vaccines? What does the gospel have to do with that? There's some sense in which it has nothing to do with that. And there's another sense in which it has everything to do with that. Why? Because if we focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we understand the deep grace that has been extended to us through repentance, the things that separate us ought to bring us back together. We ought to be able to let one thing and another and another go by the way and not create conflict in families or churches or the community if we are reconciled and united in Jesus Christ, focused on the good news concerning Jesus Christ. It shouldn't happen, folks, but it is happening. It's happening everywhere. So let me make an application uh, to 
the Ptolemaic theory of the universe. I want to suggest that our basic problem as human beings is that we have a Ptolemaic view of humanity. Let me drill down a little further. We have a Ptolemaic view of self. Everything revolves around us. Everything that's important to me should be important to everyone else. And if it's not, you're outside my sphere of friendship. It's all about me. If we could get over ourselves in that regard, we would go light years ahead of where we are in terms of understanding and applying the gospel to our lives and uniting and healing the rifts that are all around us. If you have a, what I'm calling a Ptolemaic view of self, you got a big problem. Because from that perspective, everything is up to you. That's depressing. (laughs) From that perspective, when you adopt this perspective, it means you're on your own. That makes me feel lost. If you adopt that perspective, that Ptolemaic view of the self, It means that you have to create your own meaning. And that is scary. I don't have the tools for it. Neither do you. So there's the the difficult assessment of perhaps where we are. Now now the good news concerning this passage. I want to play it out this way. If we flipped our perspective, if we left our Ptolemaic perspective on self and entered into the perspective that Paul speaks of in this passage, beginning with verse 15, if we realize that whatever we see around us is under the complete control of Jesus Christ, who is the creator and sustainer of it all. If we realize that Jesus Christ in his person and on the cross is doing his best in this world through us to unite us and to reconcile everyone to himself. If we really believe that all the way to the bottom of our feet, how would it change us? These are my suggestions, and they're just me. If I really believe that the way I ought to, the first thing I would do or not do is I would not assume that because I'm a Christian, it makes me better than my colleagues. I wouldn't assume that. I wouldn't assume that because I'm a Christian, I'm a better mechanic than the other mechanics, or because I'm a Christian, I'm a better teacher than the others, or a better lawyer than the others, or a better doctor than the others, or a better scientist than the others. I wouldn't assume that. 
because I would accept the humility of Jesus Christ. And when I, have, I would have eyes wide open and ears wide open and a heart wide open to learn from others, even people that I knew did not accept my view of Jesus. Why? Because all things exist, consist in him. I think if I had this perspective that Paul suggests, is that I would look look at my, my world with awe and wonder. I don't think I'd be threatened by science. Behind every new scientific discovery, I would see God. Behind every new evolutionary biology theory, I would see God. Unless it was a complete conflict with who Jesus was, I would see God. If I encountered a new scientific understanding of the brain and how I function, I would see the beauty in the hand of God. If I understood DNA at a level I'd never understood it, I would rejoice in the image of God. Why? Because I'm looking at every single piece of reality with a different perspective. The facts are there. Now what does it mean about Jesus? I would look at every human being as created in the image of God. Instead of condemning them, I would try to find the image of God in them. I would look at every new form of technology and I would wonder how I could use it for Jesus Christ. I would receive every material blessing, especially the economic ones. And I would wonder how I could bless others with what I had. I'd be more thankful and I'd complain less. I would watch for every opportunity, not only to identify the image of God, but to share Jesus with others who did not yet know him. I'd be less inclined to predict the future and more inclined to be faithful in the present. I would be more patient when things don't go my way because I would rest in the assurance that he holds everything together. And I would constantly be asking, wherever I was, whatever I was teaching, whatever I was experiencing, Lord, what are you trying to teach me about Jesus right now. I think that's what we call discipleship, my friends. Living life 
with Jesus and asking Jesus to open up our hearts and minds to see the world as he sees it and the truth that he sees in it and then to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're, we're grateful that it's not all up to us. We're thankful that in the middle of chaos, you are orderly and you have it all under control. We thank you that in the midst of our sinfulness and my out of bounds, that somehow you work out your will. We thank you that in the midst of our weakness and our inability to do what we're just supposed to do, that somehow you give us the strength in our weakness to make an effect on our world. And in reality, your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Thank you for that. We also thank you, Lord, for kind of moving us around and changing our perspective. And that's what this passage does if we allow it to. It gives us a new perspective on our world, not, not just about us, but the whole world. And it helps us to step into the world, the same reality that everybody else experiences and see it differently and to live differently, to walk differently, to pray differently. Thank you, Lord. What a gift it is to see the world from your perspective. Now, as we see that world from your perspective, give us the grace and the mercy to follow you into that world. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.